0: So, one question that comes to mind now and then during any retreat is the question of what are we doing here? (laughs) In our more happy and pleasant moments, the answer might come. We are dedicating ourselves to the Dharma. In our more difficult and unpleasant moments, we often have no idea. In actuality, we're doing nothing. And this is what I'd like to talk about tonight this nothingness, which you could call sacred idleness. Someone asked a Zen master once, Why do you sit? What reason do you have for sitting? And he replied, I have no reason. There is no reason why I sit and I'm not doing anything. And yet, those who observed him, and not even closely, would notice that he was devoting his whole life to this doing of nothing. Everything was in the service of what he was calling nothing. So, what is this nothing that asks for all of one's life? It is non reliance on the usual non reliable objects and objectives to bring a lasting fulfillment non-reliance on the usual non-reliable objects and objectives to bring a lasting fulfillment. Now sitting is the most visible expression of this. When we sit, there is stillness. People are moved by the statues of the Buddha for a reason because it's really an expression of non-reliance as well, sometimes when we look at the statues of the Buddha, there's a little smile a lasting fulfillment and peace Dogen said sitting is the practice of the reality of life sitting is non-activity This is the true form of the self. Outside of this, there is nowhere to search for the truth. So we sit just to sit. We sit because it's real. It's not illusion. It's not created. It's not made up. And as we sit, we do our best to let go of agendas we let go of our conditioning of trying to get somewhere, trying to get something. We question the cultural concepts about where happiness comes from, accumulating fame, status, appearance. We let go of competing. We let go of comparing We let go of the illusion of separateness. In the sitting posture, there is a non-reactivity of body. You know, the mind can be obviously just going crazy, as we know. But the body being still is quite an education for the mind. Just the stillness of the body... There's a certain kind of non-reactivity that is occurring in just sitting because we have a thought, I need to do this, I must do that, I've got to get this done, and hopefully we remain sitting. Peer pressure obviously helps quite a bit. (laughs) But we remain sitting nonetheless. And in this, there is obviously inherently some degree of non-reactivity that's taking place. You know, we're not moving according to what a momentary desire might tell us to move towards. We're also not leaning, which is quite interesting. And we're not leaning against anything. And so the physicality of the sitting also really teaches us this inner reliance, rather, reliance on that which is outside of us. In the Buddha's path, there was a moment when he touched the ground. You now, when he touched the ground, really with this sense of saying, I deserve freedom. And this is so for each one of us as well. But it was also a statement of commitment when he touched the ground. When we sit, we are really embodying this value of doing nothing. We are actually putting our body behind our aspirations. We can have such great ideas about the spiritual path. We can read so many wonderful books that really point to quite beautiful kinds of things. But until we actually put our body behind our aspirations, nothing much is going to change. (coughs) So allowing our presence here, our commitment to being here to support us. Every time we sit, it's an expression, it's a statement of trust and of faith. Each time we choose to sit, it means that we've chosen to spend our, our life, our time in this way. It's actually our life because our life can only be happening right here and now. So every time we choose to sit, we are really reinforcing that commitment and that which we know more deeply within ourselves. It's really important to get behind oneself, to recognize that we are indeed choosing. And each time we get behind ourselves, it's a narrowing of the gap between received wisdom and our own inner wisdom. That which we have heard from others or read in books or hoped to be true, we find our own inner wisdom through the practice. reveals one's life when we sit what is actually happening what happened throughout the day today moments perhaps of boredom of craving of interest, of contentment of excitement of restlessness, of judging moments of entertaining oneself you know one can have watched the same movie A really bad movie (laughs) and in one's mind it's much more interesting sometimes than what is actually happening so we have this way of trying to entertain ourselves even when it was bad entertainment originally all of this is happening in our daily life in our life wherever we are when we're distracted we can't see And so we think things are a certain way. We don't see clearly because of the distraction. And when we begin to notice things in a sustained way, as we are here, we are sustaining the attention on different aspects of phenomena of life that occur. And out of this, wisdom naturally arises... So we can have this idea that something is permanent, because we don't stay around long enough to observe it leaving. With a sustained attentiveness, we can see sometimes the beginning, but certainly the middle, and oftentimes the end, in sustaining our attention. Now, it's actually not really true that we get nothing out of practice. We actually do get something. We actually do get our life, not a small thing. We are embodying real life rather than our pseudo-life. You could say our pseudo-life consists of our fantasies and our plans... You know, the concepts, the film of thoughts and feelings that we take to be reality. And so we're differentiating between our pseudo-life, the life of the mind that is fed by conditioning, versus real life. You know, just sitting, just listening, just experiencing whatever there is to be experienced through the sense doors. Experiencing from moment to moment through the sense doors is our real life. I mean, a thought, nothing wrong with a thought. In recognizing that it's happening right here and right now, this is our real life. In being aware of a sound happening right here and now, this is our real life. This is very different than the life of plans and ideas and concepts and fantasies, thoughts about the past that we think are so real and obviously accurate, thoughts about the future that we assume to be 100% true. This is our pseudo-life, not our real life. It is a radical act to do nothing. It's really against the grain of this culture. Oftentimes busyness is seen as the world's answer to questions of meaning, questions of existence. As we know, there are whole entire industries that are meant to distract and overstimulate us. Oftentimes we see that busyness is a way to validate our existence, a compulsive activity. The more crowded our calendar is, the more successful we may seem to be. It's almost like we're always still in high school. You know, the more we have to do, the more popular we are. We can find that all moments are filled and accounted for. And we can sometimes sense the fear of finding a void or very difficult emotions if there is any space whatsoever left. We can find ourselves lost in activities for activity's sake or to avoid difficult emotions. The problem is that this approach leads to despair because in this we believe that we'll find meaning where it actually can't be found it's a problem because we find ourselves always living for the future in fantasy and in preoccupation sometimes we can sense this as we sit that we're aware but we're aware in the present moment so that something else can happen in an imagined moment in the future Right here and now, this moment, awareness in the present, is not enough. (coughs) We can as well dwell in an exaggerated sense of responsibility. In our practice, in our lives, we are attempting to differentiate between our desires and our needs. And to let go of our desires because it only brings about a greater sense of deprivation and more thirst and more hunger, and to get to know, to understand our needs more deeply and to be able to really attend to our needs. Doing this in relationship with others is essential as well. We can find ourselves quite obligated to fulfill the desires of others instead of attending to the needs of others. As Thomas Merton said, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. When we begin to notice the difference in ourselves between desire and needs, when we begin to be aware of the reasons why we are attempting to satisfy the desires of others instead of alleviating suffering and getting to know the needs of others, As we change you know in in other words as we get to know the function of this as we allow this to move and change and as we shift we do need to be willing to bear others irritation we do need to be willing to live with the irritation of others being disappointed because we aren't the way we have been Now, it's very important to say that doing nothing does not mean not acting. It doesn't at all mean not living a full life because we have to act. We have to move. We do want to be engaged in this world. Many years ago, my sister, my younger sister, had three very small children. She had a husband and she had a dog. And she was having a very busy time of it and difficult time at times. And so being a good older sister, instead of helping her, I got her a button. I tried to help her too. But I found this button that had a picture of a woman's face on it and kind of like um, you know one of those cartoon balloons And what the balloon said inside was, the kids were screaming, the dog was barking, I just had to burn it down. (laughs) So after that, every so often, she put it on her refrigerator, and every so often I would come home and listen to my answering machine and I would just hear this one-liner from her. I just had to burn it down. So, of course, that was the signal that I needed to call. (laughs) What we are practicing is non-doing in the very midst of action, dropping our minds within activities, doing what needs to be done with a full mind, and with a whole heart. Non-doing sacred idleness does not mean laziness either. We're speaking about sacred idleness, not just idleness, which is quite different. So it means inwardly not moving in reactivity. It's an inner state of being extremely vibrant and creative, in the midst of an engaged and full life. It's really the difference between passivity, which we are not at all interested in. Sometimes when meditation goes wrong, it goes in that direction of passivity, inertia, not moving in the ways that we need to move and want to move. Versus a receptivity, a sensitivity to life as it is, moving in response to life, to what is asked for in life. Keeping the heart still is definitely a lot of work. The conventional meaning of doing nothing of course, means just letting the mind wander. That oftentimes is what we think of when we think of doing nothing. Letting the mind wander leads to more wandering. There's nothing sacred about it. What is so necessary in working with this mind is compassion and gentleness to really understand deeply that we can't control the arising of anything within ourselves. We can't control the thoughts and the emotions that occur, that arise. We can respond with awareness. Yeah? We have no say-so over what it is that arises. But when we have noticed the arising, then we have a great choice to respond with awareness to respond with compassion, to respond with gentleness, to respond with wisdom and equanimity and compassion. It's not to struggle to keep the mind still. You know, the more we struggle to keep our heart still, to keep our mind still, the more thought arises, the more agitation the more restlessness occurs. We really need to deepen into the understanding and acceptance that just as birds fly, brains think. It's not a problem. We really want to embrace a certain degree of inner steadiness to observe thinking without running after each thought. Sitting really is a decision to stop running. Krishnamurti once said that we should never turn away away from psychological pain. You know, physical pain, of course. One needs to shift, one needs to move, one needs to honor the laws of the body, you know, and take care of the body, but to not ever move away from psychological pain. And I don't know if you ever heard Krishnamurti speak, um, or at least in a video or on a tape, but, you know, the way he used to talk, everything sounded like a command. (laughs) But really, it's not a command. It's really very much an invitation that we don't have to turn away in the ways that we are conditioned to do from psychological pain. Now, of course, of course, when we find ourselves overwhelming, overwhelmed by psychological pain and drowning in it, we do want to skillfully bring in loving kindness practice, pull over to the side of the road in some way, bring in compassion, you know, not always feel like we have to meet it head on, you know, but to understand That in staying still with psychological pain, we can begin to move with it. We can begin to see impermanence. We can begin to see substancelessness in our own lives, in our own experience. This is a great confidence that is born out of our life in practice. We practice stopping the ways that we avoid and pretend, the ways that we try to run away, the ways that we pursue pleasure as an end unto itself, understanding that pleasure itself is not at all a problem. It's the thought of tomorrow's pleasure. It's wanting to repeat. And well, We can see this in our retreat life we have a moment of pleasure and we want it to be repeated. We try our best to discover how it actually happened and then we do everything we possibly can to get it back, to repeat it. And then when there's a moment of pain or difficulty, we dismiss it. We just want that pleasure back. We don't want to feel what is actually happening. And we can feel quite compassionate about this because who does who would want to and yet we can understand something more deeply that it is in the facing that things do change practice is the turning around and facing ourselves it's facing our past conditioning It's facing our past suffering that has imposed itself on the present moment. We can't go back into the past and change anything. It's absolutely impossible. But we can very gently and kindly work with that which has imposed itself on the here and now. This is where our practice can be quite profound we can meet conditioning with awareness, which allows for its gradual dissolving. It slowly weakens it. You know? That's why when something difficult arises in the right context, although we don't like it, there is some cause to feel quite good about it. Because in the unconsciousness of it, it is just going to be repeated. Whereas in the awareness of it, we are slowly weakening the suffering. We stop creating new sources of suffering for ourselves and for others. In awareness, there is the dissolving of the obscurations of mind. We allow the imprints to arise so that they can be let go of. This is just a little bit of inspiration. Some of us began our dharma education with kung fu years ago, the TV program. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I found a, it was in the 1970s, but there are reruns. I found a a transcript of, just a very short transcript, a dialogue between Cain and, um, I don't know if some of you may remember, the master. So, Cain, I am troubled. Master, why? Cain, <laughs> my parents are long dead. General Chung is tumbled down from his arrogance and power. Yet within me, anger boils as water in a heated pot. Master, observe the daylily. Each morning with the warmth of the sun, it opens in lovely blossom. Each night it closes. Cain, I do not understand. (laughs) What has a flower to do with my anger? (laughs) Master, once your anger warmed you, and like the flower you opened to it. That is long past. It is night. Cain, am I then to do nothing, feel nothing, be still? Master, Still water is like glass. It is the perfect level. A carpenter could use it. The heart of a wise man is tranquil and still. Thus it is the mirror of heaven and earth, a glass of everything. Be like still water. You look into it and see yourself. I have no idea who actually wrote these dialogues (laughs) in the 70s. (laughs) Hmm. In observing, rather than reacting, the imprints are let go of into spaciousness. As the mind (coughs) settles down, wisdom is allowed to come up. We are making space for the unconscious to become conscious. Virginia Woolf once said, It is in our idleness that the submerged truth sometimes comes to the top. It is in our idleness that the submerged truth sometimes comes to the top. To see deeply is not a luxury, it's a necessity. It's so funny the ways that things are thought about as being selfish or not selfish in this society. You know, no one really ever accuses someone who watches a lot of TV of being selfish. You know, it's it's, it's very rare that that happens. And yet, sometimes sitting, you know, sitting quietly because it doesn't look like anything is actually happening is seen as selfish but it actually is not at all a luxury it really is a necessity george macdonald said work is always is not always required of a person there was such a thing as sacred idleness the cultivation of which is now fearfully neglected we can have so much anxiety in our lives. What am I getting done? You know, it can really plague us. Because it's not always easy to see in the practice, in the sitting, what is actually happening while it's happening. It's kind of like we're thrown into a pot and we're in it and we're cooking. And in the cooking, we're certainly not cooked. It's very difficult to sometimes notice what is actually occurring. This is a poem by Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper, this grasshopper I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand? Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who was gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Instead of plaguing ourselves, with this conditioned question, what am I getting done? And never actually feeling that we're getting done enough, we could choose to ask a different question, a totally different question that actually bears enormous fruit. And this question is, what is the quality of my heart right now? What is the quality of my heart right now? Am I relating to this question, to this to this moment with greed? Am I relating to this question, this moment with open-heartedness, with generosity? Am I relating to this moment with aversion? Am I relating to this moment with loving-kindness and care and sensitivity? Am I relating to this moment with delusion and with confusion? Am I relating to this moment with wisdom and with understanding and with clarity? This one question can take you your whole life long what is the quality of my heart right now with this approach when we are in activity We can move very quickly without hurrying and you can practice this here you know sometimes when you hear the bell ring and you're elsewhere and you know you need to get here on time you you can walk very quickly without hurrying in other words the body can move very quickly the mind can remain still it's really fun The mind does not have to hurry. This has great transference, by the way, into our everyday life. But you can practice it here as an experiment. And almost, you know, when people practice this, if you look at them, they look very smooth. It's kind of like you can be invisible in a good way. You know, you can kind of get somewhere in a very quick way. But your mind is utterly quiet, utterly still, because there's not a sense of hurry or pressure, inner pressure or inner urgency, or you're not where you think you need to be when you're actually not there. So the body moving quickly, but the mind being utterly still. With this approach, when we are within activities, there can be inner silence, Not associating ourselves with becoming and accumulating, but enjoying an inner silence. Within activities, we can drop our agendas. We can notice what our agendas may be when we're doing whatever it is that we're engaged in doing. And we can practice this throughout this retreat environment. Sometimes the work practice is a great situation in which to practice this because a lot of our conditioning comes up in our work. You know, it's only, it's not that much time that we're involved in yogi jobs throughout the day. And yet a lot of thought can go into it when it's not happening. And in our Doing of whatever it is that we're doing. We can really have a whole lot of agendas and a sense of worry and anxiety. Someone's going to criticize me if I don't do this exactly right. I have to hurry through it. I have to do this. I have to do that. And we can let go of our agendas while we do what we need to do. And then in the doing of it, it's totally different because we're doing it without dragging our conditioning along with us. Our mind is fresh and awake and open, and we're just doing what we're doing. You know, instead of bringing in an extra, or extra life about what it is that we're doing, we are just doing what we're doing. In practicing in this way, With an inner sense of non-activity, we actually can do more of what we need to do or want to do in life. Energy is released instead of being tied up in our efforts to get or our efforts to get rid of. We can see that there is true strength in staying still in the midst of great emotion In the midst of activities in the midst of whatever it is that is occurring we can choose to act instead of being propelled into action being forced to act being compelled to act we can choose to act out of wisdom and out of compassion we can respond we can choose to respond instead of being lost in our reactivity Now, sometimes with this approach, we wonder how in the world can we ever make a decision again in our life? Mm -hmm. How is it possible to make decisions out of the non-doing mind? We may think that we can't, but actually the decision-making process gets so much easier in practicing in this way. One way to practice with decision-making is to not side with the voices that arise when we do need to make a decision. You know, one voice comes up and says, yes, this is a good idea, and we have a lot of thoughts about it, and we have more thoughts about it, and we buttress it up in some way, we write a thesis about it, it all seems totally perfect, and yes, that's what we'll do. And then the other side of it comes up. You know this is the decision we 're trying to make, and the same thing will happen we 'll have a thought about it, yes, oh, yes, this is what I should do now I know you know, and then we 'll get behind that, and the voices will come, and we 'll buttress it up, and we 'll make a thesis about that, and then you know time will go by, and then. The first voice will come up again. Yes, this is what I'll do. I finally have realized it. Insight, this is what I'll do. And we go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it's very unclear and it's very difficult to make an emotion uh, to make a decision. So, listening to the voices instead of siding, emotionally siding with one side or another. And being aware of what we are deciding out of. You know, are we deciding out of craving? Are we deciding out of aversion? Are we deciding because we're simply confused? Also looking to see, is the decision that we're trying to make actually that important? now sometimes yes sometimes quite important sometimes you know we really are at junctures where we're going to take one path or another and it's really quite crucial a lot of the time we find ourselves lost in trying to make decisions that are not all that important the the stakes are not actually all that high Sometimes you can see that on a retreat where you think, you know, you're sitting and there's an ache in the knee and you think, should I move um, or shouldn't I move? You know, should I move or shouldn't I move? And, you know, I mean, outside of this context, nobody's going to care whether you move or not. In this context, nobody's going to care whether you move or not. But there's like high drama in it. It's like it's going to make the difference between awakening and suffering forever depending on what decision is made. Yeah. So to, to see if we can put things in perspective, I think, as well. And to listen, as I said, deeply and with calmness and with steadiness. There's a poem by, a little saying by Confucius, Muddy Water, Let's Stand, Becomes Clear. And I'd like to read you a a poem by Lao Tzu that I I love. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. All we can describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an iced-over stream, alert as a warrior in enemy territory, Courteous as a guest, fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The Master doesn't seek fulfillment, not seeking, not expecting. She is present and can welcome all things. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment, not seeking, not expecting. She is present and can welcome all things. Our essential task in our life, in our practice, is not to try to achieve something. It's not to try to get happy. It's to let go of the obscurations of that which is in front of freedom, obscuring our view from original nature. Sensing Buddha nature, sensing the liberated heart, allows us to let go of our false identification with the limited self. It slowly fades on its own, and instead there is an open and spacious responsiveness to life. I found this article in the paper in case we need scientific data, data. In a quiet laboratory, Andrew Newberg takes photographs of what believers call the presence of God. The young neurologist invites Buddhists and Franciscan nuns to meditate and pray in a secluded room. Then at the peak of their devotions, he injects a tracer that travels to the brain and can reveal its activity at the moment of transcendence. A pattern has emerged from Newberg's experiments. There is a small region near the back of the brain that constantly calculates a person's spatial orientation, the sense of where one's body ends and the world begins during intense prayer or meditation, and for reasons that remain utterly mysterious. This region becomes a quiet oasis of inactivity, a fact that could explain the borderless spiritual communion felt by the faithful for millennia. It creates a blurring of the self-other relationship, said Newberg, an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania, if they go far enough, they have a complete dissolving of the self, a sense of union, a sense of infinite spaciousness. Already scientists say the young field has prov- the young field, 2,500 years ago, by the way, has provided evidence that these meditative states are a natural part of the brain, that humans are, in some sense, inherently spiritual beings. So if we had any doubt, it's in the paper. (laughs) We are practicing this art of doing nothing and finding out what this nothingness is. We discover happiness is in no thing. It lies in awareness, uncontrived, uncreated, unconditioned. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings live in loving kindness and in compassion. Let's sit for just a moment. short poem saying by Relke What is necessary after all is only this, solitude vast inner solitude, to walk inside yourself and meet no one for hours, that is what you must be able to attain